0: No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. In a Collier's Magazine article, William Jennings Bryan once said a convention, once it got started, could be like an animal with a mind of its own. And he'd get to see both the good and bad of that animal. In eighteen ninety-six, he was a thirty-six-year-old former congressman from Nebraska, who had fought for low tariff and for silver coinage, the idea of more money being available to make credit easier for farmers and middle class workers. He was a long shot in any year for the nomination of a major party for president of the United States. But it was an odd time, eighteen ninety-six. The economy was in depression, people were angry, the party was leaderless, and the president was disinvited to his own party's convention. Brian had a silver tongue, and he used it. He took the platform to argue for a silver coinage plank and took aim at the money changers. This is 1776 all over again, he told the crowd. We are supported by the commercial interests. Wait, commercial interests? Yes, well, that's how you said small business in 1896 parlance, and they were okay even with Bill Bryan. We are supported by the commercial interest, the laboring interest, the toilers everywhere. You shall not press down upon the brow of labor a crown of thorns. You will not crucify mankind upon a cross of gold. It worked like a charm. The delegates decided, what a great speech. Let's nominate this guy. The country will be swept away like we were. We never did sweep the country. McKinley won that election, but he excited the party enough to give him three tries at the presidency, his last in 1908. Well, that was then. It was a very different scene in Madison Square Garden, New York City, in 1924. Brian is a different man, no longer a young up-and-comer. He's 64. He's taken some hits. He's taken some stands. He's been a cabinet member, but then he's quit the Wilson administration that he was a member of and turned against Woodrow on his League of Nations plan. He invested heavily in Florida real estate during that Miami boom of the 1920s, amped up the fundamentalist rhetoric, and became outspoken on temperance, adamant in his support for prohibition. In 1920, he opposed the party's nominee, supported a dry plank, and when it failed at that convention, he said... My heart is in the grave with the dry plank, and I must pause until it comes back to me. In other words, I'm not lifting a finger for the Cox-Roosevelt ticket in 1920. This did not endear him to Democrats everywhere. So yes, there was some stirring in the party. But, you know, after the 1922 elections and the 1924 campaign coming up as the party met, maybe, Brian thought... He could apply some morality to the country because Teapot Dome had shown that the Republicans had no morality. He must show that the Democrats could demonstrate to the country that they were the superior moral force. But what happened in Madison Square Garden in New York City is the party destroyed its chances in a bruiser between William Gibbs McAdoo and Governor Al Smith. McAdoo had more delegates but could not get two-thirds. Governor Smith's people tried to maximize their home turf advantage, packing the hall with supporters. The convention battles over a resolution condemning the Ku Klux Klan. Brian has no help in this. He's not a Klan supporter, but he feels it will rip the party apart to have an anti-Klan resolution. He asks the party to just remove the name, just take out those three little words of that organization, and just condemn the organization without the name. And he asks them to prey on it. Delegates are not enthused by him. New York press is hostile. The exhausted conventioners go on for 4 ballots, 5 ballots, 10 ballots, 16, each time reading through all the states. 20 ballots, 23 ballots. The nation is beside themselves listening to the staticky transmission on the new medium of radio. Not all people have receivers, but many are sharing or hearing about what's on the radio through the newspapers. Each time Alabama is called, they hear, Alabama cast its votes for Oscar Underwood. It makes people chuckle. It's a funny name. 28 times now they hear that. Alabama cast its votes for Oscar Underwood. 30 times Oscar Underwood. 38 Oscar Underwood. And now... Brian pleads with the convention chair to speak. All he is is a Florida delegate now. He just wants to help the party. Okay, maybe old Bill Bryan can say something to stop this unwinnable madness. He gets in front of the big mic, up on the podium, red, white, and blue behind him. Could it be another show of love from the democracy is about to happen? Will they pick him up again on the strength of his words? Will his words calm this crowd? And once again, maybe not enthrone him as a candidate, he's older now, but as elder statesman? Mr. Chairman and convention delegates, thank you for this opportunity, he began. My only desire is to see this party win. Okay, good start. Even some applause for that. Mr. Chairman, there are many people who could be the nominee of this convention. A heckler's voice is heard now for the first time in the speech. Who? He ignored it and went on, not yet naming a candidate. It was his intent to go through each region of the country where Democrats were and start naming some good people all across the nation before he got to his man. First, he defended the South. I remind you that we've had two wars since the Civil War, and each time the states of the South contributed men and money. The hecklers in the audience were not impressed. Why shouldn't they? A voice in the darkness asked. He ignored them, and he continued on, defending the South and then naming some potential nominees from across the country. Humphrey of Florida, Ralston, E.T. Meredith, Charles Bryan. The delegates laughed at that one. He had named his own brother, not exactly unbiased. Or Thomas Walsh of Montana. He finally got some cheers. Everybody loved Thomas Walsh. Teapot dome prosecutor, upstanding senator, good old loyal party man. But he had already refused the nomination, so that was going nowhere. All of this naming of names was starting to bore the audience. Come across, a heckler said. Who are you for? I mentioned some from the south, now from the north, Brian thundered. How about New Jersey, delegates shouted. What about Al Smith, another? Now Bryan was getting caught up in the heckling. He tried to dodge, but he ended up engaging the shouters. My friends, I could cross the United States and give you different men in different sections. If you have a preference, take your choice. What about Connecticut, one shouted. Now he was in a headlock with the audience. Engaging these hecklers may have been a bad move. They got more bold. Tired, cranky, and although it was Prohibition, it was likely that more than a few of them were drunk. He kept on, but 24 paragraphs into the speech, he still had not named his candidate. And his own supporters were now getting anxious. Macadoo, McAdoo! they began to shout. Brian was a bit thrown off from this coming from his own people. He had a great oration planned here. He was going to try to persuade not just the delegates, but the radio audience and the newspaper men. Do not rush me, my friends, he said. But the Al Smith folks were intent on doing just that, and they started verbally abusing the McAdoo folks out in the audience, all audible on radio. Kook cook, McAdoo, they shouted. Kook cook, McAdoo, oil, oil. McAdoo, as a lawyer, had been tied up with Ed Doheny, was directly involved in the Teapot Dome scandal. McAdoo himself wasn't, but he was lawyer to Doheny. So... This charge hurried Brian into a defense of the man he hadn't announced yet. McAdoo's oil was in Mexico. He's never been tainted. Never been tainted. The opposition of Wall Street to him speaks volumes. This really got the hecklers up. Who's paying you for this? A thousand dollars a minute? And yes, in 1924, conventions weren't as nice and stage-managed as they are. Today, finally frustrated, Brian says, This is probably the last convention of my party to which I shall be a delegate. This was very embarrassing, this moment, because the convention started to applaud. And 43 paragraphs into this bruising speech, with the chair, Senator Walsh, one time threatening to clear the hall if the booing didn't stop, William Jennings Bryan endorsed William Gibbs McAdoo. His speech Did not calm the crowd, did not even really help McAdoo, did not put him over the top. It didn't convince the press, nor the radio audience. It was his last. As he predicted, it would be his last convention. He died a year later. I bring up Brian's speech in the 1924 convention because Todd Logan writes on our Facebook site, "On My History Can Beat Up Your Politics, Historically, at conventions, anything stranger than Clint arguing with a chair Well, first off, I did see the uh, Clint uh, speech. At first I saw it with the sound off, and then I later got the, the sound, so I got to see both the visual and audio elements of it. I'm not sure it was so devastating, but I do think it just failed as an intended comic or dramatic act. Then again, you know, conventions can be boring, so it certainly wasn't a boring moment as it turned out. It was quite a talking point for a lot of people. Political theater is different than other forms of theater. You know, we all hate politicians, and we think they have no value whatsoever, no training whatsoever, right? But a speech like that is very different. You have to be trained for it. It's a different type of drama than a scripted movie acting. First of all, I think, and this is one of the things that probably tripped him up, is you've got the audience as part of the theater, The real audience is on TV, you've got yourself, and you've got the convention audience. And you're kind of reliant on them to react properly to what you're doing. And I think that can throw off a lot of non-professionals and throw off a lot of politicians. There are only a handful of politicians that are really great speakers. Hard to hear, hard to keep time, so I get it. It came out very surreal, and we could argue this, that it made for an interesting moment in a convention. Yes, conventions are totally stage-managed, which only accelerates people for look, looking for things that go wrong in these conventions. So if you have something that just didn't appear to go right, it just interrupts a message where you could have had a uh, an absolute message going out of the convention. But I don't know if Clint's really going to change the election that much. <laughs> Terms of the RNC convention, so far there's kind of mixed results. Some polls show, you know, three to four point Romney bounce. Others show no bounce. Gallup showing like a one-point drop, actually. Nate Silver saying it's, you know, overall looking a little disappointing. This election is tighter than 2008, so you could argue little is the new big when it comes to convention bounces in such a tight election like 2012. I note the arrival of Generation X into the national political scene, these Generational terms we know are easier to define in broad strokes. When is a person actually a baby boomer and when they're a Gen X is subject to a lot of debate, but with Paul Ryan being born in 1970, puts him pretty clearly in that group. I don't think this ends baby boomer dominance of national presidential tickets, which started with Bill Clinton. It's hard to say that Mike Dukakis, born in 1933, was a boomer. I guess we could quibble about President Obama, too, being a boomer or Gen X. His 1961 birth puts him in a disputed territory. Some say because he was born to a boomer and that he just recently paid off some college loans. He's qualified as Gen X. But did the president grow up playing Atari? That's what I want to know. I think not. The World War II generation got an early start with politics as Kennedy jumped the line and became the first World War II, greatest generation, whatever you want to call it, president in 1960. Of course, it didn't matter, and this is something I'm always pointing out. Even if Richard Nixon had won, he was born in 1913, Kennedy in 1917. big deal, four years. You would have had a greatest generation president either way in 1960. It was a shock then because Eisenhower was the last 19th century president. He was born in 1890. In fact, even if Lyndon Johnson had somehow gotten the Democratic nomination and won the presidency in 1960, He would have still been that youngin, 19 years younger than Ike, being born in 1909. So with his iPod stocked with music from ACDC to Zeppelin, not an ABBA fan, I guess, Gen X enters national politics in the form of Paul Ryan. One more thing to say about uh, strange moments at conventions. They are, despite all the stage management, still arenas of human beings. So in 1964, you had reporters hushed out of the arena while cameras were filming the whole thing. In 1968, you had Mayor Daley shouting expletives at a senator that uh, had called the Chicago police the Gestapo. They got a lip reader on TV to look at what Mayor Daley was saying and confirm that indeed he had used some words that were not to be broadcast on TV. And in 1988, we had the spectacle of an up-and-coming Arkansas governor announcing the nomination of his friend, Michael Dukakis, fellow governor. But in the process, rolling off a laundry list of numbers and facts about what was wrong with America in the 80s, with the Reagan administration, about unemployment, child literacy, education, Europe and Japan. No one mentioned China in 88. You mentioned Europe and Japan. Figures and stats. He was, as the television announcers were starting to say, well off schedule. Television announcers were starting to say they had to be aware of the television audience as well as the convention audience. He tried to read fast, to go through the speech, which, as it turned out, the Dukakis people had prepared for him. They had cleared the full speech, and that is exactly what Bill Clinton did. Had to read. We're in the dark ages when it comes to daycare. That means more stress on the job. That means our children are two years behind Europe and Japan. We accept more illiteracy than other countries do. (laughs) Cut to Chris Wallace. And he's there with the New Jersey delegation. And they say they're starting to get frustrated. They are, as he said, well past the level of tolerance here. They want to start the demonstration for Governor Michael Dukakis. Governor Clinton, he said, had overstayed his welcome. Clinton keeps on droning, though, and and 20 minutes late, with the delegates eager to get to their nominee and begin, Clinton says, In closing, and the convention erupts in applause. Not unlike what had been done for William Jennings Bryan. He was cheered, not because they loved Bill Clinton's speech, but because he was going to stop talking. For the governor of Arkansas, who thought himself to be a future candidate of the Democratic Party, he thought his career was over. This was a joke. It was a pretty surreal moment at a convention, right up there with Clint's, or Bryan's. In fact, even more important, because Clinton was in the running, he pulled himself out of the 1988 race, he didn't didn't decide to run that year, and he was certainly an up-and-coming governor, and that's a Southern Democrat, someone that they were thinking about running, you never thought that he would be the nominee in four years after that. How he turned it around? Well, he appealed to a talk show host. They tried to book him on the Johnny Carson show. And, well, Johnny Carson's bookers were like, we don't do this. Carson has never had a politician on. So Wolfens, gets a little creative. No, 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 no. You don't understand. Governor Clinton isn't going on as a politician he plays the saxophone. He's a musician. The booker from The Tonight Show, you know, was incredulous. What? Plays the saxophone? Well, I'll run it by Johnny. Run it by Johnny Carson. Says, okay, we'll try it. And Clinton is on. As soon as Clinton walks out to see Johnny Carson and begins to speak, Carson puts an hourglass on the desk and Clinton is able to make fun of himself. He plays the saxophone and he's back a contender for his party's presidential nomination. That you could do in the era of talk shows. Might not have been available to Mr. Bryan. Okay, so I referenced Governor James Cox. He was the governor of Ohio in 1920 and the Democratic Party nominee earlier. Amber Bryan writes, Has a governor of a state lost his home state? I ask because Mitt Romney was governor of Massachusetts and he's not expected to win that state. Absolutely, it's happened. Governor James Cox was chosen in 1920. He was the governor of Ohio. He had played a decisive role in 1916, really securing his state for himself and for the Wilson ticket. He owned Cox newspapers in Ohio, and he was a wet. That means he was against prohibition law. But of course, as the law was already part of the Constitution, he pledged to enforce it. Wilson had helped him get the nod in 1920 over his own son-in-law, that fellow we know, William Gibbs McAdoo. Cox, they figured, maybe you can win Ohio. He was crushed by what the New York Times said was the backwash of moral and physical exertion from the recent war, that being World War I. Harding, also from Ohio, and normalcy, got 60% of the national vote and won the state of Ohio by 10 points. Governor Cox then lost the election and his home state. Truman had a role in picking another candidate for the Democratic uh, Party, Governor Adelaide Stevenson of Illinois. He ran in 1952, reluctantly he took on General Eisenhower and was swamped in the nation and in his home state. Step into the world of power, loyalty. Four years later, he lost Illinois again, this time by even more. 19% loss, just as New York Governor Thomas E. Dewey would not take his home state from Franklin Roosevelt in 1944. Al Smith also lost his home state of New York in the 1928 election by just 2%. The upstate voters really heard him. He got the city vote. Two others I should note. Woodrow Wilson carried his home state in 1912, He was governor of New Jersey, He carried that state running for president in 1912, but he lost it after four years in the White House in 1916. Grover Cleveland, same thing. As governor of New York, he brought that in for the Democrats in 1884, but he could not hold it a second time in 1888 after being four years in the White House. He lost New York. James Knox Polk is probably someone that Mitt Romney might be looking to because he served a stint as Tennessee governor. And... That did not help him in 1844. He lost his state to Henry Clay from the neighboring state of Kentucky, but he'd gladly trade his home state for his home country as Polk won the presidency that year without his home state of Tennessee. Simply said, it's a bit odd for a candidate. They should be winning their home state. It's often a reason for picking a nominee, and it can be decisive. No one in a single Republican primary, though, can be said to have pulled the letter thinking that Mitt Romney should be their nominee because he could win Massachusetts. So it's not that shocking that it's probably not going to be the case. There were other reasons. It was the resources Romney had to keep it close with a well-funded incumbent, which polls are showing you're still doing. It was the fact that there were so few faces from the previous Republican administration. He had eight years, George W. Bush, and so few people from that still want to get involved in national politics. Condi Rice was at the convention, Bob Borton, lesser extent. But things are open because you're not really pulling from that past administration for a variety of reasons. And I also think he won because he had run the last time. And uh, people knew his name for that reason and his primary opponents, despite that well-publicized rotating appointment to the front-runner position, were not as attractive to Republican primary voters. He won't get Massachusetts, but you can't say that he promised to do it. John Adams won Massachusetts in both 1796 and 1800, but what enabled him to become the second president at all, instead of Jefferson becoming the second president, it was pretty close. It was two electoral votes, and they couldn't have been less in the bag for John Adams. Both came from unreliable sources, a feisty independent and a quixotic schemer. Indeed, John Adams defeated Thomas Jefferson in 1796, 71 electoral votes to 68 electoral votes in the Electoral College of that year. So you lose one vote and you've got 70, 69 Adams still wins. You lose two of those electoral votes and you got sixty-nine, seventy, and Jefferson becomes the second president. The states were pretty even. The North went for Adams, the South went for Jefferson, and Jefferson, surprisingly, won Pennsylvania. And Adams, less surprisingly, held on to New York despite a strong challenge from Republicans. So it came down to two Southern electors that voted differently than their region and decided to go with the Federalists. One was William Barry Grove, ostensibly a Republican congressman in league with Madison. He represented Congress for the Cape Fear District of North Carolina, and he initially sided with Jeffersonians, anti-administration. He didn't like all of the Federalist schemes and the bank and things like this, but he also started to chafe at the way the anti-administration party the anti-federalist republicans whatever you'd call them insisting on 100 percent loyalty he didn't like it he wasn't in league with federalists either but he did think that the idea of just thumbing our noses at great britain on a treaty just didn't make any sense what are we gonna side with this
1: small nation france why start a war with england we're not ready to fight yet So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money podcast wherever you get your podcasts. So between being
0: a little perturbed that he was being pushed too much by the Republicans and also siding with them on the Jay Treaty issue, he went for the Federalist. He voted for Adams. The other elector was Loven Powell. A merchant from Alexandria, Virginia. Talk about a flip-flopper. Prior to casting his vote for John Adams, the winning vote in the Electoral College, as it would turn out, he wrote a terrible note about him in a circular that was sent around Virginia that Adams was too close to Britain to be president. Well, that's a good way to kill a candidate in 1796. Well, he did this because Powell at the time wanted the nomination after Washington to go to another Virginian, in this case, Patrick Henry, who recently had become a Federalist and Administration supporter. As the idea was floated, in Richmond and the coastal areas where there were still Virginia Federalists at this time, there was little support for Henry as their nominee. So, okay, if you can't beat him, join him. Powell then wrote a positive article for Adams in the Virginia Gazette to try to counteract all his trash talk, and then cast his vote for John Adams in the Electoral College, which, as it turned out, he couldn't know how the other states were voting, became one of those winning votes. I bring up 1796 because it was one of the closest we've had to a tie in the Electoral College, which has never happened. We've come within two votes, we've come within one vote. Hayes Tilden, which went 185 electoral votes to 184 electoral votes, Hayes, Tilden, respectively, in the Electoral College. But that was the result of a House commission, and not the direct, undisputed result of the election that led to that closely almost tied result. Sumita Hudson writes, I am hearing a lot about a tie in the Electoral College. I heard this happened in 1824, and a lot of experts are saying it may happen in this election. Okay, Uh, It's never really been close. What happened in 1824 is actually that you had several candidates. You had four candidates running, and so it went to the House of Representatives. So it wasn't a tie. It's just no one got a majority. It's never really been close. The Electoral College is a good way to guarantee that most of the time, the winner is undisputed. Of course, Bush-Gore, 2000, that was close, 271 to 266, after disputed Florida was certified for Bush. Jefferson-Adams' rematch in 1800, after 1796, went 73 to 65. Jefferson and Burr, as it turned out, getting the equal votes, 73 and 65 for Adams. Wilson-Hughes, in 1916, went 277 to 254 pretty close. Kerry Bush in 2004 went 287 to 257. Carter Ford in uh, 1976 went 297 to 240. You don't really have a lot of close ones in the electoral college. You can thank the 12th Amendment for that because that guaranteed that there would just be two or possibly three men running. It helps parties it's, it, or it encourages that a vice president and president will run together. Things have been shaped in an odd way over the years. Some swing states have grown in population, and new western states that were red for a long time have become blue, and their small EV votes have become a little bit bigger due to the Hispanic population increase. All of these factors coming together, and there are some scenarios now where you could possibly get a tie. You need 270 votes to win. So a tie is 269 to 269. We're presuming in this election that there is no third party that's going to be able to score any electoral votes. The easiest scenario where I can see this kind of tie is, okay, Obama and Romney trade those two big swing states. Romney gets Florida, but Obama gets Ohio. Obama gets the entire Northeast, and I'm including New Hampshire here, plus he gets Michigan, plus he gets Illinois. Plus, he gets Wisconsin, Minnesota. Critically, he holds on to New Mexico and otherwise wins these states that he's expected to win. Romney wins Iowa, Virginia, Colorado, Nevada, Missouri, and Florida. Everything else, you know, the red states that you expect, that's plausible. That brings you to 269-269. A second scenario gives Romney, Ohio, Florida, New Hampshire and Nevada. Romney wins all those. Obama doesn't win any of these swing states we're talking about. He doesn't win Ohio. He doesn't win Florida. But instead, he keeps his winnings from 2008, those states that he pulled into the Democratic column. Virginia, Colorado, and New Mexico again. Well, he loses the traditional swing states. And so that gets you to 269-269. It goes to the House. Unless... Obama's team can pull off a win in a state like Nebraska or Maine, more likely Nebraska, which split their electoral votes among the congressional districts. And in 2008, President Obama became the first candidate to win a single congressional district, winning the Nebraska second congressional district. If he can do that again and appeal to the land that uh, Jake Tapper refers to as Obamaha, then he can beat the tie and get and make it a 270 269. It's going to be a little tougher this year because we added a few Republicans to that second district. But the second district contains Omaha and it did go overwhelmingly for Obama in the 2008 election. So we'll see. Uh you know, if it's possible again this year. But uh, One thing that's not going to happen, though. In 2008, John McCain did not campaign there. The Republicans didn't expect to lose that. Want to bet that the Romney team is going to try to cover this and we will have resources to do? I think so. But you will expect the battle to be taken to these small places. You know, New Hampshire, Nevada, this district. They're all going to be essential in what could be such a close election. What happens if you get a tie? 269 to 269. Goes to the House. But you know, the framers were always limiting the power of the House, that body of the people, right? They can only pick Romney or Obama, right? If it goes to the House, you can't pick anybody you want. So we know this, right? That's the first limitation. The second limitation is the House does not vote as individual members. They're going to vote as state delegations. So Florida gets one vote, Illinois gets one vote, and so does Delaware. Now in Delaware, That's going to be one congressperson. In South Dakota, that'll be one congressperson making the decision. But in other states, it's going to be a vote of those congressional members. Now, it is the House of Representatives. The Senate does not play a role here. Currently, more House delegations, according to the Rothenberg Report, 33 of them are Republican, 17 Democrat, and Minnesota is tied. So even a presumed Obama state like Illinois... That delegation is majority Republican and are likely to vote for their party's nominee. There have been other times when ties were talked about. 1968 was a year where there was a lot of talk about a potential tie vote or a vote that would be thrown into the House of Representatives to be more accurate. And also in 1980, there was a little bit of talk about this. Uh, The Atlantic Monthly had a whole article in 1980 about this because essentially you had Carter, you had Reagan, and you had Anderson. So one of the things the Atlantic Monthly pointed out in 1980 is, well, Anderson, the third-party candidate, if he gets New Jersey, Massachusetts, and Connecticut, and then Carter got the states that he was, at least at that point, uh, leaning in the polls, it would end up being more of a blowout, and then Reagan got the, the ones that he was leading in the polls, it would be 268 Reagan, 230 Carter, that's not enough for a majority, you go to the House of Representatives. Now, at that time, the House of Representatives would have been a majority of Democratic delegations and could have, despite his Electoral College win, replaced Ronald Reagan with harder had that happened. There was an active campaign on the part of the American Conservative Union at the time to make congressional candidates pledge that in the event of a deadlock, they would support the presidential candidate of their district. It was something they wanted to do. And I'm surprised you're not seeing more talk of that in this election, right? Making congressional candidates pledge to vote along with their district. If your district went for Obama, You vote for Obama. If your district went for Romney, you're going to vote for Romney. Why aren't they doing it? Well, polarized politics these days, and I think people are very aware that a Republican member of Congress, by and large, will vote for Romney if it goes to the House, no matter what their district does. Maybe if it's overwhelming, they'll think about it a little more. There'll probably be some pressures to do it. Other things to think about, if you get really that close in the electoral college, is faithless electors. This has happened before for very silly reasons. I mean, 1988, a West Virginia elector just voted for Lloyd Benson instead of Mike Dukakis. In 2000, a elector from D.C. to protest uh, D.C. not having a senators and congressman just didn't vote. So Gore was deprived of one electoral vote. He got two from D.C. instead of three. In 2004, a Minnesota elector voted for uh, John Edwards instead of John Kerry. If they can do that in these meaningless votes, imagine if it comes down to a tie, what kind of shenanigans can happen. So, yes, I think all these, I think this ground game should be very important for both campaigns. First of all, looking at very small things. Yes, now that Nebraska's second congressional district really does matter, New Hampshire really does matter. But also, considering where congressmen are going to be pledged, and being sure you got some electors that you can trust. So in the course of this, we've talked about strange and funny moments in convention. I have one last one to speak of. It was common in the end of conventions to do kind of farewell ceremonies, and it was a kind of running joke in the 40s, 50s, and 60s because they would reserve this place at the Republican National Convention for Herbert Hoover. The unspoken assumption was that the president might die before the next convention, so better salute him. By the time of the 1960 convention, Herbert Hoover spoke and said, well, I guess my last three goodbyes didn't take. And he got a lot of applause out of that. Indeed, Herbert Hoover had the longest post-presidency, 1933 to 1964, and would live to see Barry Goldwater nominated, though he was in too ill health to attend that convention. Well, this is important because his record is about to be beaten on September 7th. That distinction will go to Jimmy Carter, the longest post-presidency. Now, both of these presidents have kind of redefined the post-presidency. They were both very active. Hoover was involved in the Truman and Eisenhower administrations, helping out, reorganizing the government and assisting education and various other projects. And, uh, you know, James L. Carter has been involved in Habitat for Humanity and many other you know, and getting involved in various international affairs, the Carter Center and other things. So we talked about this uh, several years ago on this cast. I warned you about this date, and now it is close to arriving, probably will by the time you listen to it. Hoover had lived 11,552 days after his presidency, compared to at the time I'm recording, 11,549. The third is John Adams, 1801 to 1826. I'll have to go back and edit my old archived podcast about presidents. I want to thank you for listening. The website is www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. And please, if you like the program, go out and tell the world. Tell iTunes. Tell the readers of your blog. Climb the highest tree and yell. You know, maybe don't do that. You might fall. And if you're on Stitcher, give us a fave or give us a thumbs up. Really helps. And I do thank you for listening.